Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Michael Beckley, the CTO and co-founder at Appian, and we discuss his collection of vintage technology, space elevators and moon bases, and how Appian's low-code platform is helping enable companies to move faster during COVID-19. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. It's Michael. Hello, Joel. How are you doing? Good to talk to you again. Great. Is that an Apple, like old school Apple? What is that back there? Yeah, that's an old Mac Plus. Yeah. That thing's amazing. Look how small that is. <laughs> the old nine inch monitor, yeah. And then next to it, you've got the big like modern screen. It's just like, it's unbelievable what 20 years will do. Yeah, I, I mean, if you were to see more around, you'd see I've got the whole museum here. I just taught my niece and nephew to code on Apple two C's, code in basic, and uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's it's remarkable to see how low code as a concept really isn't new. The idea that that business people are going to be able to build applications isn't new, um, but the the tools we have are considerably more advanced today. What other cool old technology do you have there? Oh my gosh, I've got some of everything. I mean, we've got original, um, the original iPod, the uh, original iPhone, some older stuff, a uh, whole bevy of old Apples, um, Apple IIcs, Apple IIes, the original PowerBook, the original Mac Portable, pre-PowerBook days, more of a luggable, has a big carrying handle, weighs about you know 17 pounds, I think. Um, yeah, just anything cool like that. I've got, you know, even much older technology as well and old, uh, old walkie talkies from the 1940s. Really? You know, some, some, uh, some fun old radio tech. Yeah. Things that have been passed down, not to mention, of course, the old classic gaming consoles. You gotta have, gotta have original Atari 2600 and you know, original ColecoVisions and, and things back from the eight bit era. So where do you keep all of this stuff? Do you keep it at like your house and you bring friends over and show them or do you keep it at the office? It's both. It's both in the office and at home. Well, the bigger, bigger collection is definitely at home. There's, there's no room for it all at the office. Um, so, of course, my wife would complain there isn't room for it at home either. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I listened to this one podcast, uh, Joe Rogan, and he's got mm. this like warehouse that's like a man cave where the people they fly in, they come in to him. Yeah. And have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard his podcast? I, I've heard his podcast. I haven't heard about his collection. But I've definitely seen a number of people who built, you know, filled barns full of uh, classic equipment of one kind or another. I'm not at that stage yet, but you know, it's it's getting there. Yeah, I don't think he has like a lot of technology, but he's got like the fitness stuff and the cars. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about doing a version of that, but like for technology. I was actually just thinking yeah. about that last night as I was falling asleep. I was like, what is the next level for the podcast? And I said, you know, maybe we. Get rent like a warehouse and because we mm -hmm. rent an office right now but I was like if we just rented a big warehouse you know I could we could put some cool old technology stuff there and then we could have people we could you know pay to fly them in for for the shows and then it would just take it to that you know next level mm -hmm. yeah certainly and you know fill in whatever 80s techno vibe you want get some old <laughs> arcade consoles in there get you know an old Tron machine or an old Space Invaders if you want to go back to the 70s yeah, I was thinking some older stuff, but then also 
we get like uh, one of those robotic dogs that you see from that that company that spun out of MIT Boston Dynamics. Get one oh, of those. Right, right. The, the serious the serious dogs that are going to kill us all, right? Yeah. Those I, was dogs. More, I, was, <laughs> I was thinking more like a Sony Ibo, the old little cutesy pet dog, but yeah, <laughs> no, that would be cool too. And we would we could put them next to each other, right? Yeah. That would, that, they'd make a good pair. Yeah. Yeah, they actually I looked into this in 2017 or 18. Mm-hmm. To try to buy one of those, uh, Jake, if you can remember, just chatted in the in the thing here. But to buy one of those robotic dog things that Boston Dynamics is building, and they were saying like they weren't selling them. They're like one person that they would let them take to tech shows and things like that. And uh, but I went and checked like two weeks ago, and now you can buy them for development purposes, and they have like an SDK for it, and they've gotten yeah. way more uh, accessible. So I was thinking, oh, I probably buy one of those, and. Uh, you know, program it like a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw. Um, I saw that they were getting more. Um, they were attempting more outreach to developers, and that they gave one to um, the MythBusters guy to do a little TV episode about and showcasing the programmability. That you can find that online. Oh, really? I yeah. love the MythBusters. Yeah. Are they? They're still doing that show. Well, there's a. I, I don't know what the current production schedules like but the uh, you know the two guys uh jamie and uh i forget his other gentleman's name but um they Mr. have their Beard. own stuff now yeah yeah and so uh, so the one of them has got his own you know show that he does where he does fun things and he was playing with the the boston dynamics dog and having it try to climb over rocks and trying <laughs> to program it and teach it stuff um so that's that's you can find that on youtube but oh um, i will definitely check that out yeah, yeah. So we, we've, uh, you know, we like to experiment with robotics too. We've have a, we have a, a robot in the office called Baxter, which is one of those that's designed to be, uh, it's basically a Linux box with arms and legs and, you know, you know, so it, it can, um, you can teach it to do things just by, um, basically moving the arms around and, uh, and it's safe to work side by side with humans. Now it's incredibly slow and it's already, you know, obsolete the way robotics changes every six months, but. But yeah, we're a software company. That's what we do, software. And we just, like everyone else, though, we'd like to see more of the fusion between the, the internet we see online and the, and the real world around us. And so with, with sensors, we can create digital twins. And uh, with Internet of Things, we can begin controlling the universe instead of just modeling, representing it. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a convergence uh, you know, coming. I like the way you said that. Now, uh, have you guys gotten back into your office? Because at first it looked like you were in your office. And then when you moved around a little bit, I'm like, oh, he, that's a Zoom background, a custom Zoom background you must have made. That's right. That's the custom Zoom background of my office, which is, uh, so no, I'm not back in my office. Um, this, that's, uh, this is my way of being back in the office. Uh, as of the end of June, we'll have uh, about 10% of our workforce back in headquarters. So, uh, And where is that located? Oh, in uh, Tyson's, Virginia. So nice. just outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah, the, the local Virginia, uh, Virginia just entered phase two reopening. So, so we'll start with, uh, you know, low density uh, access. I was thinking about you a lot when the whole COVID thing happened because, uh, you know, that PPP stuff came out and mm-hmm. it was like, I was talking and thinking a lot about how these companies are going to spin up like PPP applications. And I was like, that sounds like a perfect use case for low code. Did you guys get to do any of that? We did. We did. And in fact, many of our clients went ahead and used us. They already owned our software to build PPP apps in the, you know, 24 hours right after the, so the government announced 
the legislation finally passed and was signed into law on, I think it was a Thursday. And so there was no warning as to what was actually going to be in it and no real knowledge as to what regulations were going to be required for the banks to implement. So what they did was they used Appian to overlay their existing loan origination systems and created that custom application process and did it in hours rather than you know days, weeks, months. And, uh, and then they also frequently called us up for help. And so we got involved in helping them scale out those programs. But, but they were able to, to use low code to, to do that work in, in hours. And that was, that was really a clear use case for why uh, low code makes so much sense in the modern world in terms of not just being able to respond to a crisis, but just being able to move fast, just being able to get to market faster. And, uh, and more importantly, as those regulations continue to change as their interpretation changes, as the Small Business Administration puts out new guidance, as Congress gets more involved and puts in place their own priorities, the banks are able to respond in real time. It's not, a, it's not an onerous process to, you know, to rethink those business rules. And to, to give you another example, you know, with Appian, we always talk about um, automation in the context of what we call full stack automation. So when you model work in Appian to automate it, and that's what Appian does. So as a low-code automation platform, we help people automate their work. You model it as if humans are going to do it. We don't assume that we're going to be replaced by robots anytime soon. Instead, what we do is we use technology to augment human potential and human decision-making and accelerate human decisions. And so you model what the human would do if they were handling an application for a loan for a small business through the PPP, that payroll protection plan program from the, from the government under the CARES Act. And then we allow tasks to be delegated to RPA bots or to AI algorithms or to APIs, to application programming interfaces as, as, as uh, desired. But if one of those automations fails, if your robot dog falls over, the work is already modeled to flow automatically to be escalated to the next type of automation technology or to a human. And, uh, and so you don't lose a step there. Everything continues to flow. And this turned out to be pretty crucial because... Uh, before too long, the Small Business Administration came out and banned RPA bots from submitting to their website. Their site was overwhelmed, and they said, you have to use either human workflow or our API. And of course, Appian customers, that was not a problem at all. They were easily able to either not adjust because they were already using one of those other automation methods or just the workflow to, to somewhere else, to uh, to another Appian automation. And uh, And at the same time, I was getting phone calls from consultants working with other banks using other technologies. They were frantic that day. That afternoon was crazy. And, uh, and you know, people were losing their minds, calling me up saying, what are you guys doing? How are you adapting to this? You know, like, how is this possible? You know, you, how are you going to join us in calling up the SBA and complaining? And I was like, no, everything's fine. You should, you know, if you were depending on a bot to do all your work for you and thought that was going to work, it didn't, it didn't matter if the SBA banned you. You were going to run into problems anyway. You know, as soon as the rule changed, as soon as the process changed, as soon as a system changed somewhere, your bot was going to need to be reprogrammed. So, you know, it just it, it it's just obvious in today's world uh, that you want to augment human potential, not replace humans. Yeah, and I was right in there, right as a business owner. So. I submitted and they're like, oh, submit here. And you submitted there and then you get an email like a couple of days later saying, oh, it's like, we cannot accept this because people started accepting prior to the, oh, I forget the exact words, but they didn't release, they, they've passed a law and then they have to release guidance to the banks. And then right. it's interesting to actually go through this process in real time because I don't, I never experienced anything like it. But now 
just by living through this period of time, I understand how like all the SBA stuff works, but just on a much longer process because yeah. they, they first create it and then the banks start to implement it, but it's not perfect. So then they come back with a bunch more questions and then they have to go have meetings and make adjustments. And then it's basically like product development happening in real time between the government and the private sector. And it was really kind of interesting to watch. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and not just intellectually interesting, right? It has a real impact on people's lives. And, and so being able to build an agile system that can be changed by the business owners, right? This is not an academic problem. This is, this is the way you build resiliency into a modern society, into a technologically advanced civilization. And, you know, while we experienced it now with COVID, this isn't the last time society is going to be challenged and civilization is going to be challenged. Uh, whether it's by a pandemic or murder hornets or you know, a hurricane <laughs> or, or whatever, right? You know, we, we have to build resiliency into our systems and agility and not depend on traditional water flow, uh, waterfall, uh, water flow, waterfall uh, <laughs> development. Um, you know, I, I was anticipating floods, I guess. It's the next the hurricane. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's uh, sorry you had to go through that. But, uh, you know, the next stage, of course, will be the forbearance process as, as uh, small businesses ask for forgiveness of the loans. And, uh, and right there, our, our banks are already working to Im implement those. As we learn more about the rules and guidance that will come from the government at the last minute, we'll be there to, to make those adjustments in real time. Yeah, that's, uh, that's like the whole next step. But I was pretty excited mm -hmm. about the, the updates that got passed. I think, I don't know if they got signed into law. I think they did because I got a, an email from my attorney, but they extended it to 24 weeks coverage period. And they did a couple of other things too, to, to help with the forbearance. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the CARES Act touches a lot of different other parts of, of life, but COVID, you know, challenged us at Appian to respond like it challenged everyone. And, and so we, not only did we do the PPP applications you're talking about, but we introduced a workplace safety application, which is now being used by some of the largest uh, companies in the world to track the health and safety of their workers, as well as the you know contact tracing manually if someone reports that they've tested positive for for COVID, and the follow-up case management is all managed in Appian because Appian is typically used to pull together data and to auto and automate the processes for resolving a case, and uh, and of course the facilities management to ensure that your facilities have sufficient. Um, personal protection equipment, PPE, and, uh, and are cleaned uh, after an incident so that people can return to the workplace safely. And so, you know, working with large global manufacturers, Appian, of course, being a large global public company, has that ability to have this multilingual solution working, you know, internationally, securely, uh, HIPAA compliant here. Europeans don't care about HIPAA, they care about GDPR, GDPR compliant there you know, uh, high trust certified cloud solution that, that can be configured in a day by HR staff without needing coders. And, uh, and that's allowed us to reach a whole new audience of people who are not traditional Appian clients and help them in their time of, of uh, urgent crisis to, to get up and running more quickly. That is really exciting. So have you seen what they're doing with the workplace safety solution? Like I, I don't under, yeah. I can imagine if you're a large, I'm a small business. I can imagine if you're a mm -hmm. large company, you're going to have some like guidelines or things like, but what are they using the low code stuff for? Yeah. So 
what Appian allows them to do is tailor the guidelines for every facility and its local regulations and regions, as well as that facility's unique requirements for health and safety. So you can imagine an office is different from a manufacturing site. And if you think about it, a typical manufacturer these days will also have its own retail. It will also have its own distribution centers. It has to track visitors and it has to track contractors and it has to think about the, you know, the unique challenges of those different types of environments and have specific guidelines. But rather than having to code those, you know, an HR person can simply go in, pick the facility, create a questionnaire that's tailored to that facility and give guidelines in response to the answers that people give to those questions. So, uh, you know, depending on the local, uh, you know, situation, that may mean reporting to a local government authority, might mean might require an OSHA, Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration report, um, you know, because these days now the government's decided that if you get a COVID infection at the workplace, that will be treated like any other workplace injury. And you know things that weren't even known what the policies would be four weeks ago, well, Appian's able to make that quick update to the solution and push it out to all of our clients. And so, uh, you know, keeping everyone going in this in this time, yeah, it's definitely interesting. It's interesting to see a, um, a, it's interesting to see this happen because it amplifies like these core principles of human behavior. <laughs> yeah. So from yeah. just like a observationist standpoint it's a lot of fun and you know there's obviously a lot of leeway given and understanding but it, it was definitely cool to see everybody respond so quickly and you know this idea of building an app from scratch for everything is just so not possible for situations like this when you need like a low code infrastructure yeah, it wasn't possible without low code, and now it is. You know, we, you know, we all were shut out of the workplace when Virginia shut down, for example, in in March. And within a few days, we had the first workplace safety application up and available. And uh, you know, today we actually just launched a, a specific version for universities called Campus Pass and, oh, cool. and higher education. You know, so again, think about the unique needs of a student population trying to figure out who's coming back to campus in the fall and. You know the way the different generations are responding and giving them you know giving faculty and students administrators all the interfaces they need uh you know that's something that we we're pretty excited to do and it just took you know another week's worth of of, of uh, work on top of what we'd already done so yeah it's uh it, it's it's incredible what low code can en enable and uh and it's it's obviously not just us anymore it's the whole ecosystem of appian partners who are doing th incredible things for their clients so i was i was curious about I was doing some research, right, and about the top like topics for 2020 and technology. And one that that I've seen rising up is the RPA. And so I'm curious, mm -hmm. how does low code and RPA like, interface with each other? Yeah, so we've been interfacing the two for years now, and I think people are just starting to to realize how intricately connected they should be. You know, if you think about it, on the one hand. Traditionally, RPA was just used to automate a repetitive cut and paste task into a into a system that didn't have an API. So, if you want to scrape a website, uh, web scrape a web page, uh, or you want to, um, uh, you know, interface with a legacy green screen mainframe, so RPA would be fine for that. But if you need to build a new system that doesn't exist, RPA can't help you. You know, that's really where low code shines. But uh, in reality, what you need is the best of both worlds, you know. So, say you want to build a new system to handle PPP loans. Well, uh, you're going to need to build that new. So, you need some low code, 
but you're going to need to work with your existing finance system. You're going to need to work with your existing loan origination system. And you may be able to do that with an API, but inevitably there's going to be something that doesn't work elegantly. And now you've got your RPA bot who can help you marshal the right paperwork and low code can help you then you know, finish the work and give you a total solution. So it, it really is low code platforms allowing you to build context and intelligence and state management and, and really that whole picture that an RPA bot doesn't have because an RPA bots, they're really kind of stupid. I mean, let's be clear. They, they do only exactly what you teach them. They don't have persistent memory. They don't have uh, that overall process context of end-to-end, what is the goal you're trying to accomplish? That's what you build in an app. That's what you model in a, in a low-code platform, uh, in a low-code automation platform. And so by combining that human work with the ability to task uh, an RPA bot from within a low-code platform, then you get the true value. And, uh, and so that's what we've done with Appian. Whether, whether it's an Appian bot, we provide our own RPA bots, which are great. They're cloud bots. They can scale them up really cost-effectively, have a, a large bot farm processing a lot of paperwork for you. Uh, or we work elegantly with our partners. You know, UiPath, Automation Anywhere, Blue Prism, all work seamlessly out of the box with Appian and our robotic workforce manager. Uh, you know, and that's, that's our approach to things. It's like in the modern world, systems are becoming more distributed. There's more participants and specialists. And this idea that we're all going to be using IBM computers, running IBM software, and, you know, that's all you'll ever need. Like, that, that, the 70s mentality of the mainframe is dead. You know, so, so we give you everything you think we, you need. But most importantly, we give you the ability to swap out any of our pieces with your favorite vendor, your favorite choice, and keep that integration, uh, keep that holistic control. You get pretty excited about this stuff. <laughs> well, it's... Uh, you know, it, to me, it's, it's what I think I've said to you in the past. I grew up with this notion, like that Macintosh computer behind me on the screen. I, I grew up with Apple IIs. I grew up with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak promising that we would all be creators of technology and that we wouldn't have to be computer scientists to do it, that we could be biologists, we could be astrophysicists, we could be uh, economists, we could be political scientists, we could look at the world through what we're passionate about and use technology to get our work done faster so we can think about changing the world and not think about syntax errors. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think what we're doing is really important to uh, unlocking the entire you know, human potential. And it was something that was promised to me and as, as, a, as a kid, and it wasn't delivered. You know, it turned out to be so much harder than, than uh, just coding in basic. And, uh, and that's a shame, right? It, you know, technology is so much more sophisticated than it used to be. And yet it's still so much harder than it should be and it needs to be uh, to actually empower people to be creators and, uh, and to design a better future. So, so yeah, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Preach, Michael. <laughs> Dude, I love it. I feel the same way. And it's these type of people, you know, that, that see it and they get this desire to push it forward that actually end up as a collective we all there's enough of us we reach critical mass and then we push things forward and that's that's how we get to the next stage and you know i keep like I, when i first started having this topic of conversation about uh, elon musk neuralink and persistence of consciousness i kind of was awkwardly going into it saying uh the, the general sentiment that i hope he achieves the goal and we reach the ability to capture a state of consciousness and persist it prior to me uh, 
expiring, right? And so, but now I'm like, no, there's no reason to be shy about that. That's not that science fiction-y. I mean, with, you know, things that give me hope, the lady that made the discovery of CRISPR gene editing, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to her doing that, she said they were like three to 10 years out and then she did it and it was like blown away. Like there are, we really just have like a few uh, little massive changes that need to take place in our understanding of physiolo- uh, physiology and our psychology. And then that could actually be possible. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. That is a specific example. I, I was just started reading a, um, John Scalzi's science fiction work called Old Man's War yesterday. And the concept is built, that, that book is built around transferring consciousness into a new body. And so uh, that's science fiction. You know, Elon Musk is working on on science reality, and it will be three to ten years off until the day they invent it. You know? So, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, there's a great deal of progress that can be made and improvements that can be made without us even solving the, the entire problem. You know, you think about it with uh, prolonging quality of life. I mean, for me, I'm I'm a living example of that. I had a heart transplant ten years ago, and uh, and that was, you know first attempted back in, I think, the 1950s um, by uh, Blakely and um, like 56, something like that, maybe, in the, maybe a little after that was the first attempt. And it, yet it took some unlocking of the immune system, right, to, to actually make that system work. We don't know what we're going to have to unlock to make it possible to, you know, interface better with machine and consciousness and the human. But we do know that it's fundamentally going to behave to the, according to the laws of physics and biology that we already know. So it's, it's well worth exploring. And, and, uh, and along the way, along that journey, you know, who knows what kind of advancements in, in uh, human quality of life and human potential will unlock. No, you make a good point. Because we also don't have to, it's not like we have to unlock it all at once. Like if we just got everyone to live 150 years through a few advancements and then that just buys us more time. Cause I'd say the the area where we lose the most uh, productivity is in death because all these lessons have to be, you know, you got to first wait 20 years for maturity. Then you have to learn all of these lessons and then you get into maturity with knowledge and then you have a, a small portion of the career left and then that and then you're in retirement so you just have that that sliver right and so if we can expand that by improving our our length of life that would just help it grow even faster and get us these amazing advancements sooner yeah quite possibly i mean obviously every new technology advance has to be thought of in terms of uh, its holistic impact on on society and what will it mean when uh, if we do achieve you know, greater longevity for uh, opportunities for young people. Um, you know, I think that ultimately we have to understand and, and find our place in the universe and, and grasp what does it mean to be finite in our lifespan and, and uh, you know, to all have the same amount of time, whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, 20 years or, or 200 years or 2,000 years, it's one lifetime. So, you know, how do we make that meaningful and take care of, of uh, what needs to be taken care of around us? Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, even if we get persistent consciousness, we still have the heat death of the universe. Yeah. So, that's <laughs> a little longer perspective problem. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but the time will fly by. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I like thinking big. I like that you like to think big, and I like that there's also a realistic path because you know Musk isn't saying you know we're going to invest billions to persist consciousness. He's just saying that's the end result. We're going to we're going to start by 
you know, making better technology to solve things that are very solvable through current implants. And so I love that the path to where we want to go is laid with legitimate business reasons along the way, because that makes it all the more possible. Yeah. So the smartest thing that Musk ever did was realizing that the entire game of getting to orbit was about price per pound. It was just economics. It's really it. So as cool as it is watching those Falcon 9 rockets land or a Falcon Heavy break apart and land uh, in pieces individually, um, it's really all serving one very basic economics principle. Can you lower the price per pound to orbit? Because until you do that, talking about Moon, Mars, talking about Starlink, talking about anything you want to do outside of the influence of Earth's gravity is academic. It's totally irrelevant. And, and when we look at the history of human spaceflight, or any spaceflight for that matter, robotic or human, uh, it comes down to that basic economics. And this, just like the personal computer was supposed to allow us all to just become creators, uh, the space shuttle was promised to my generation in 1978-79 as being something that was going to unlock human space travel. And anyone was going to be able to go to space. Why? Because it was supposed to be reusable. It was supposed to be 10 times cheaper per pound to take anyone and anything that they need, like water and air, with them to space. Now, the shuttle turned out to be 10 times more expensive than a disposable rocket in the end. And and, and it never achieved the 60 or 70 flights it was supposed to be taking a year. Instead, we got 60, you know, about 60 flights the entire life of the program from, you know, 1980-ish to, uh, you know, 2000, uh, what was that, 2012, 2013, last shuttle flight, right? 2012, 2011, maybe? Who knows, right? So, uh, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I saw that last shuttle orbiter when it was, uh, when it was down. I was down at the Cape for uh, the Juno mission to Jupiter, and they were still servicing the, the last shuttle before it was sent off to the museum. Uh, and that was moving. It was quite emotional because the shuttle program to me represents like all of this American potential and this belief in progress and science, and it was going to make our lives better. And it did tremendously cool and valuable things like putting Hubble up and repairing Hubble and, and building the International Space Station and many other things. But it was also a colossal disaster. The shuttle program not only resulted in, in you know, multiple deaths tragically, but also tragically set us back in our quest to lower the price per pound to orbit. It's, it's so strange to talk about, but like that's what it was for. It was supposed to make it cheap and affordable for you to take a vacation to space. Go stay in a low earth orbit you know, hotel, that's fun, but that allows the money to push science ahead. We should have uh, radio telescopes on the far side of the moon already that are helping us uh, not only unlock the mysteries of the universe and figure out as the universe expanding or contracting and what do we see beyond the observable universe and and answer fundamental questions about physics and, and matter and, that, and who we are, but also, you know, say, setting up a useful way for us to detect and deflect asteroids long before they can wipe us out the way they wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, so, so this stuff matters. It really does. And, and it comes down to understanding simple incremental progress based on fundamental principles. What are we trying to achieve? And so with low-code automation, we are trying to make it 20 times faster to build a new application to automate some work. And if we can achieve that kind of economies of scale, then anyone will be able to create what they want to create. And, uh, and we will allow so much uh, value in, in human creativity to be unlocked that 
that just like getting to space cheaply and getting access to space, we'll get access to cyberspace for everyone. And so that's what we're about. And, and I, I, I love to see inventors who get it, who, who, who see right away what is the missing piece and how they can they chip away at that and, and, uh, and get incremental value to fund their continued uh, revolutionary progress. I like that you have that, that model because I have a model in my head that I ask myself, what are the humans building constantly? Mm -hmm. uh, I just, if I'm standing on another planet and I'm looking down and I see them all going to work and doing their things, they're all building something as a collective organism. What are they doing? Where are they going? And then how can I help remove resistance on that path? Because if you can, that's solving a legitimate problem for the species and you will be able to generate revenue so that you can... Like people that that want to help and be useful, the byproduct of that is revenue. Like, I'm sorry, it just is. It's just the result of it. And you can tell how useful things are service-wise based off of the revenue that's generated from them because they we just keep building on top of things and having new problems and then doing that on and on and on. But I, I didn't get that uh, idea, that concept until about two years ago on a flight. I was just flying and I was just thinking and I was like, how is what I'm doing today helping remove resistance from the species to go forward and how can i tie that back to what i'm doing and you did the same thing when you were talking about you know price per pound and then connected all the way back to what to what you're doing so i like that you have that model uh in your head was i kind of getting close to what how you see it yeah that's exactly how i see it couldn't have said it better myself nice we're best friends now michael <laughs> <laughs> hey would you ever do one of those uh like, have you seen those those low Earth orbit type air flights where you can go? It's they're padded, and you can yeah, kind of yeah. go. Would you ever do one of those? No, no. no. So uh, I had the pleasure of spending a, a weekend with uh, Richard Garriott, private astronaut, creator of Origin Systems, pretty much invented Dungeons and Dragons on the computer back when I was a kid. What? And he is an investor in uh, Space Adventures, who who owns the the Vomit Comet. It's called, um, you know, colloquially, the. Uh, airliner that is padded and, and goes up and runs the parabola flights. And in the middle of that weekend, he, he showed up for one of the events. Uh, this it was organized by his new company, Portalarium, um, which was making, you know, was making a new video game. Right. And he showed up late because they had had an extra uh, seat unsold on the flight that morning. And so of course he went out and took it. Like, this is what he does. Like he's taken countless, countless flights on that thing, taking advantage of his investment and, and so I, I've definitely had plenty of time to think about it and some access and certainly could have spent the money for one of those tickets. But um, no, I, I, I do know my limitations and, and, uh, and, and, and my body, you know, perhaps better than most people having had it surgically enhanced significantly just to stay alive. So yeah, no, I am, I am not fit for, uh, for extreme sports and events. Uh, you won't find me diving to the bottom of Challenger Deep. You won't find me flying into low Earth orbit or, uh, or flying parabola flights. No, I am, I am stuck here on the ground trying to invent things so that other people can take flight. Yeah, and that's okay with me. Yeah, it's all about knowing yourself and knowing what you want. And I, I always encourage people to, to do that, like figure out who you are and what you want and then go after it. The flip side of that, of course, is, you know, if we can just get things moving a little better with uh, material science, we can get the space elevator built and, yeah. uh, and then I can go to orbit and take a look at the, you know, get my overview effect experience and, and see the curvature of the earth and all of that. But, uh, 
but yeah, until we get that space elevator, probably too high G uh, an experience for me. So you're pro space elevator. Oh, totally pro space elevator. Definitely. Yeah. And so, although I will say my, my cardiologist uh, who, who did my heart transplant <laughs> insists that his sutures are stronger than the natural, you know, and that, that I could probably be fine. But, uh, cause I, I, that was the first thing I did ask him after the heart transplant. I said, you know, is it all right if I go skydiving? Is it, you know, is it all right if I, uh, you know, buy a ticket on Virgin Galactic, uh, you know, and, and, and do a low earth orbit flight. And he was like, he paused for just a moment. He was like, Oh, no one's ever asked me that before which seems strange. I mean, you get a second chance at life. Wouldn't you ask that question at least? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or roller coasters, um, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, we'll see, you know, it, it, it's not impossible, but uh, not, I've got plenty of other exciting things to do right now. So I have not looked into the, the space elevator. Like I've seen it, mm -hmm. I've seen drawings of it and I've, you know, skimmed an article, but there's that like skimming knowledge that people have. And then there's like a, I went down the rabbit hole on this one. I have not gone down the rabbit hole on the space elevator, but there are enough smart people talking about it that it's kind of like encouraging me to do so. Yeah, I mean, it's worth looking at. You can see, obviously, you know, carbon nanotubes uh, are nowhere near advanced enough for us to build it yet. Um, but, or we could build a few inches of space elevator and we need to build obviously a few hundred miles. The, the principles are all sound. Uh, I, I think that the question is, as a society, can we be organized enough to do it and commit enough of our of our wealth and resources to have the vision to see that it would, you know, ultimately resolve that question of price per pound to orbit in a in a dramatically new way that you can never really get to with reusable rockets. And uh, you know, for anyone who doesn't understand the space elevator, right? It's just putting a big counterweight out in geosynchronous orbit and building down a cable to Earth, and as you build up, and eventually they meet, and uh, and so you know, there's a lot of different ways you can propel propel the elevator cars up and down. Um, but a lot of different proposals for that, everything from lasers to, you know, onboard nuclear power to, you know, transmitting electricity up and down the, the tether. But yeah, it should work. It should work as long as we can agree not to try and knock it over. Um, um, so. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to knock it over. I did go deep on carbon nanotubes a few years ago. I did go down that rabbit hole. I was so excited. And then I found out mm -hmm. that they could only build like millimeters or feet. It was yeah. a very low, exactly. yeah, exactly. very low yeah. amount. Yeah. Oh, dude, this is good. You like a lot of different technology stuff. Well, it's, you know, they don't call me chief technology officer for nothing. So, um, <laughs> you know, the other thing worth looking at right now, where it was, again, what's old is new. Now that we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, boots on the moon in 2024 and, and the new space race is obviously going on. And whether you watch the Steve Carell Netflix <laughs> version or you watch the, uh, the headlines and tweet version between, you know, China, the U.S. and, and Russia and, and others. India, Japan, all of space programs, all aiming at at the moon and Mars. Um, heck, even the UAE is you know launching space missions these days, right? So, um, but you know the idea of how do you build a moon base and how do you live long term on the moon? There are so many fascinating engineering questions and studies that were done, uh, you know, back in the fifties and sixties, and then shelved when Apollo, you know, ended and we went for the shuttle program and, and focused on orbit. And it was, it was primarily because the original plans all were predicated on the idea that the military needed to be on the moon to drop nuclear bombs on Earth, which never made any sense in the first place. But, uh, you know, once people figured out that, that, you know, just shooting a missile up and down again was a lot cheaper, uh, you know. So, so basically, we haven't thought deeply about how to live and work on the moon in decades. And yet, a lot of really good science was done on it back in the Apollo program and before the Apollo program. 
And so now we need to figure out again, because we want to go to the moon and we want to stay and we want to be able to do science there. We want to be able to, you know, uh, do zero G manufacturing there. We want to be able to mine, you know, get helium three for fusion reactors of the future. You know, so there's a lot of great reasons to be on the moon that have nothing to do with dropping nuclear weapons on people, but you might require a, you know, RTG, a radio thermal, you know, generator, uh, basically a plutonium powered reactor to stay on the moon for a long time. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a fascinating set of problems, uh, you know, and we'll see how they get worked out. But until we get there, until you start actually having people experimenting, you know, all that theory is only going to get us so far. I like, though, that I think humans are getting smarter with each generation. Like, I feel like that's a pattern as far as like, even if you go back and you look at history and like things we used to do, whether it's on like the 10 years or the 50 year or the 100 year increments, it seems like we are just getting smarter as a people. And that gives me hope. Well, that I would disagree with, Joel. You oh, know, good. I find the more I study history, the more I'm impressed with how brilliant our ancients were and and how stupid we are. Uh, you know, how just the basic stuff, right? How did they build the pyramids without computers? You know, how did they, uh, you know, philosophers understand that the earth was round, that the earth went around the sun, you know, before we even had direct observation to prove it. You know, um, that, that kind of, of genius to me is is has always been rare but i think that it becomes increasingly rare in a world where there's a ton of knowledge but not a lot of wisdom and uh and our you know over reliance on machines and technology and uh, and the internet can perhaps um allow more of us to get by being stupid <laughs> and and so um yeah i what i what i think when i when i used to be able to travel overseas before covid and look at ancient architecture. Uh, it was so tempting to look at it all as primitive because you were looking at ruins. And one of the things I really love about augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality is how it's being used by archaeologists and anthropologists to bring the beauty and sophistication of ancient civilizations and ancient architecture to life so that a new generation can see and respect the wisdom of the ancients for what it was in its glory as it was rather than seeing the rotted, decrepit ruins of generation after generations, you know, wrecking those castles and wrecking those cathedrals and, and uh, wrecking those machines that they had built. You know, I think one of my favorite archaeological finds is the, uh, the ancient Greek combination astrolab. Uh, you know, it's like a computer and found in the Mediterranean. And, and once they finally started imaging it correctly, they realized that you could calculate all kinds of things, you know, your latitude and your, the orbits of different planets and, and all this craziness, you know, thousands of years ago that they were managing to figure out how to do and then making mechanical entities to express those calculations uh, because, of course, they didn't have, you know, digital computers. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced that, that evolution is working to our advantage right now in terms of making us smarter. I am thinking, though, that that certainly by building on the inventions of the past, as long as we're smart enough to keep them and not burn down our libraries of Alexandria uh, too regularly, as long as we continue to not let superstition uh, hold us back, as long as we allow free ideas and free thinking, as opposed to you know dictatorial regimes, um, you know repressing scientific discourse and repressing collaboration between teams. Then we can you know meet the world's challenges. We can detect and identify and 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 um, and immunize society against pandemics. We can you know invent better seed stocks so we can feed more people. 
You know, it, it, it's, it's obvious that we're stuck together. So we've got to figure out a way to use technology to, you know, get along and prosper together. Yeah, I, that was a lot of good stuff that I agree. I don't know where, where I want to jump in and <laughs> respond. But um, I agree with a lot of what you were saying. I think I want to talk a little bit about the ancient stuff. Um, they had a lot of time, like signal versus noise, I guess. It's very noisy now. So I think if you removed the noise today of the advancements, the amount of like philosophical thoughts would be explosive. Like I think there's a lot of a lot of that going on like a lot of people thinking deeply but we're in such a distracted world now we have all the tools to communicate the deep thoughts but we're too distracted to really do it but i do think overall like from the some of the ted talks i've watched about the decrease in violence i think that's padded i think equally on the other side there's there's problems too like when you make a society so padded and so easy to survive you're going to have the the weak part of the society grow just by definition right it's, I don't know, I don't know the point I'm trying to make, but I, I was trying to come to a, <laughs> a good thought there uh, based off what you were saying. But I do think that there are a lot of smart people having deep thoughts. There's just a lot of noise out there too. And I think that the, the premium people, the people that you'll pay a premium for, the people that can weed out the noise. Well, you, certainly that's always been the case. And there is, there is a, a lot more noise out there from which we have to derive a signal. And if you think about that in, in pure low code platform terms to bring it back to what Appian does, <laughs> you know, you're, you're able to instrument so much more. Now you're able to monitor internet of things, devices, you're able to uh, instrument a, a business process. You're able to collect a ton of data and it still costs money to store all that data. Maybe co maybe costs a lot less than it used to, but you have exponentially more data. So uh, you have to be thoughtful about what you keep and and have good filters to to focus on what's valuable. But there was something you said that I do want to comment on about about the ancients again and and you talk about distraction you know becoming more of a problem today than it was the how they had more time back then. I don't know how you measure that, but i I know and I enjoy reading old material uh, where where generation after generation complains about something, you know, it was television was was a big distraction before that radio was going to corrupt our morals and be a distraction and no one was going to do anything so we're going to sit around listening to the radio all the time before that the newspaper and the printing press were these new distractions that were going to overwhelm us with noise instead of signal and and before that you know uh before we had ipad tablets i'm sure they had wax tablets and i'm sure that was a big you know drama oh my gosh the kids these days writing everything down on wax tablets but and before that, you know, obviously lifespans were much shorter and, uh, and your distractions were you needed to actually hike miles to get water that was fresh if you were lucky, lucky and you had to, you know, uh, barter for food and you had to be constantly repairing your house and putting new, you know, fresh straw on the rooftop so you didn't, you know, get all washed away or something. And you didn't have the nighttime because you didn't have electric lighting. So, uh, you know, your amount of time to actually think as opposed to just survive was probably minimal. Um, and, uh, and then of course you, you know, you probably had 12 children because you couldn't count on many of them surviving childhood. So you were constantly dealing with the sick and disease and all kinds of other horrible things. So, uh, I, I don't know that it's, it's very helpful to think about us as having any special advantage or disadvantage. I think we have to look at what we have today and diagnose it accurately for what it is and, and what are our challenges and what are our opportunities. And right now our challenges are still pretty prosaic. We have a ton of paperwork, even though we live in a digital world, now they're just PDFs. 
We've got to find a way to scan them more efficiently. We've got to find a way to use RPA and artificial intelligence to efficiently get our work done faster. But to do that, to empower humans to you know, think big about what problems they want to solve. And, and that's all we're trying to do at Appian is, uh, is give people the better tools to do that. You know, a, a sharper stick, uh, you know, a better hammer. And, uh, and, and so that's the way I like to think about it. In the same way that I, I like to not assume that every new generation of employees at Appian is somehow fundamentally different than I was as a kid coming out of school. Of course, there are differences. And of course, they've had different experiences. But, you know, it was Cicero who railed against kids these days in his writing and how this, you know, that to me was like the, this obvious reality that every generation complains about the next generation after it. And with some good reason, but also every young generation, it's their job to rail and rebel against the old because we need to get out of their way. And so to bring it back to your idea, like technology can make us all live longer. That may create even more intergenerational friction, you know, because uh, there'll, be, there'll be more opportunity for us to have, you know, these, this greater conflict of experiences. And, uh, you know, imagine if you have trouble learning Snapchat, you know, how, how much trouble are you going to have learning, you know, these new implanted machines of the future, unless you were raised with them. It's interesting. I think you make some amazing points. I mean, I know you make some amazing points. I really like you opened my mind up a lot when you talked about the distractibility of previous people. I don't know why I have it painted in my head that it was, you know, quiet and you were making bread all day or whatever. <laughs> but but you're Working right. Working your sourdough starter, yeah. Yeah, but what but what it's where it's pulling me as far as a thought is that it's the people who choose to make time for these things to be reflective or for the people who have those capabilities uh, and those gifts to like use them like some people like you control their time and some people are controlled by time, you know? And I, I mean, for the first, I didn't have self-awareness. I mean, I was a late bloomer. I didn't have like real self-awareness until like 25 ish. Like I didn't realize I was a person on earth with options. I mean, I already built my own house and like I had, I had gone through, you know, sold companies and do, and then all of a sudden I just like woke up one day and I get it's, it's like, I physically felt, you know, how they talk about like the brain maturing at certain ages. Mm -hmm. Like I felt sure. the process going and, and continuing to go in my early thirties. And it's just a really interesting, uh, realization cause I could never explain it to my, to my past self, but making the time to think about that stuff, to be reflective, to understand, to achieve new levels of understanding and, be comfortable with the world and understand how it's going through these changes and like how you obviously are, are very well versed on like the past and you look a lot into history and those, how things, how, how things repeat themselves and how you can develop principles in order to deal with timeless things. And so I think that there, there will be this maturity people will be able to reach that should be persisted because it'll help us go farther in the long term. Yeah, I really like the way your your mind thinks. I think it's like really, really sharp. I, you, you even picked up on like this concept of like belief structures. And when you're talking to the next generation, usually those people are bothered because they're causing issues with their mental model of the world, right? That's usually why I mm -hmm. see one generation point down to the next generation. It's like, I had a fixed model. I figured out life and now you're disrupting it and the kids these days. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Ch you know, if technology can help us adapt to change, then then maybe we'll make some progress on that front. And I, I like how you talk about time. 
uh, you know, time is its own construct, obviously. And, you know, as a social scientist, uh, we think about, uh, my, I think about my co-founders are social scientists. We think about how to design software that helps us overcome the tyranny of time and, and also uh, overcome the human mind's uh, limitations around wh- how many things it can keep on its uh, mind at once, right? So you can only handle four or five things cognitively simultaneously. But software can help you, prompt you with reminders, keep you organized, and keep you focused on long-term goals that may have hundreds of things required to attain them. And so, you know, we we give it, uh, we give humans an ability through through software to uh, actually achieve greater things by by rewarding the you know the brain's pleasure cycles with instant accomplishment for a deferred gratification of a long-term goal. So. You know, by by modeling all these subsidiary tasks, uh, you know, we can keep you excited and engaged and keep things moving. And it, you know, may not be pure gamification. It's really just a simple cognitive design with an understanding of the human mind. To do that at a macro level as a society is much more challenging. You know, I'm I'm trying to solve one problem at a time. But but uh, what you're talking about is you know solving an entire generation's problems and and their model of the world and all of those those different challenges they face. You know, how can we get people organized and, and aligned? You know, that's what democracy is, is the best model we've come up with for trying to achieve consensus. And, uh, and we know how imperfect that is. So uh, there's certainly room for improvement. Yeah, and money is a big driver too. That's like a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, right? But it, even that has its own limitations, clearly. It does. And, uh, and market failures. So. And everything, regardless of what method you choose, can be, for lack of a better word, uh, mm-hmm. I'll use manipulated nefariously. So it's not necessarily, you know, the mod, like, I think you can almost manipulate any model negatively if you, if you have enough energy and will to do so, but like nothing's perfect, but that's when, when I get into these, these conversations or states of mind, I remember, uh, Bill Nye in one of his books, he talked about this concept of good enough. And so that helps me back down from my natural, like perfectionism style. I was like, okay, if it's good enough to pass on to the next generation, if it's if it's good enough for the organic structure of life, uh, then I can use that concept good enough to uh, back down from some of the things I'm being over perfectionist about. Yeah, that I mean, that's a that's a great construct, um, and, and I, I love Bill. I had a chance to meet him at the Juno launch as well down at Cape Canaveral, and uh, you know what a what a genuine guy in person. He is just just like he is on TV. He's thoughtful, he's engaged, and he really cares about people and was really giving with his time. But to your point, it's, <laughs> it's accepting our own failures and compromises, you know, to, to make us make it possible for us to go forward. You know, I am, I am a perfectionist. I, you know, don't want to let anything out early, but you know, we have to get into this, this reality of, yeah, most of what you're doing is good enough. It is helping move things forward. And, and fundamentally, you know, that's at, at its best, that's what capitalism encourages, right? Is to recognize that, you know, you, you don't have to wait for, we don't have to wait for the perfect car. We can, we can ship what we have now and incrementally make it better. So as we start to wrap up, because I want to be respectful of your time, you have, can you go a few minutes over? Can you go like five minutes over? Or do you have a hard stop? I believe I can, yes. Yeah, that should okay. be all right. Because uh, I just wanted to get one last uh, thought from you on like your leadership style and, and how you approach that. Well, uh, I mean, I think that my my approach to leadership is is like everything else I do. I try to be hands on. I try to be engaged. I try to 
I try to plan and be organized uh, so that when the the mission is presented, people understand it and they know where we're going so they can work independently and, and not need to be micromanaged by me because they understand what we're doing and, and where we're going. They know why we want to build what we build. And then they're empowered to make the thousand decisions with local information that, that they don't need to come back to me for um, because they, you know, I can trust that they have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to make those decisions right there at the point of action without uh, waiting, without hesitating, without having to you know, uh, call another meeting and, and consume lots of other people's time, including mine. So I do like to, to, uh, to delegate, but only after I've explained what we're really doing and why. And, and I think that as well, I, I want people to trust that I know what I'm doing because I've done it. And so I, I try to stay hands-on and involved with as much of the business as I can and you know, really experience just enough of the different jobs and roles so that I can understand and empathize with the, the frontline who is encountering those challenges and resistance, whether that's sales or recruiting or engineering uh, or even finance, it's, it's, it's all important to understand what is it really like to do that role, to do that job and, and, uh, and encounter whatever resistance you encounter in, in your daily life. So, you know, as a leader, I think it's important to know uh, what your people are feeling and be connected to it, but also have time in your day to think, you know, to take that step back and contemplate where all this is going. What are the existential threats to the business? What is changing around you that that uh, could disrupt what so many people are working so hard on? I think that's your obligation as a leader is to respect the hard work of of the you know so many people who make it possible for you to be a leader, and and therefore to trust you know the trust they put in you to be taking the organization in the right direction, you know you owe it to them to be thinking night and day about is that really still the right path? Is that still really the right place to go? Boom. You're amazing, my friend. <laughs> and after all this COVID stuff, stop maybe next year, uh, do an in-person podcast. I'll come out and visit you or we'll meet up somewhere or do something like that. I really, I really genuinely like the way you think. Well, well, thank you, Joel. And, and maybe I'll get out to that, uh, warehouse you build someday with yeah. the dogs and we can we'll see how the cows <laughs> come in. And, uh, yes. So look forward to it. Anything else we didn't uh, get out or are we good to go? I think that's terrific. I would just add anyone who's interested in learning more about the Appian low-code platform, just go to appian.com and you can get a free trial and start building you know, your first application, automate your first workflow in, in minutes. Yeah. Amazing. So, so it's self-service. I could go on and try it right now? You can go on and, and sign up for a trial right now. We'll get you approved and, and uh, get you going. Yeah. Awesome. Happy to do that. Thank you. Have a great day, my friend. All right. You too. Take care.